Welcome to TC Daily, the technology show brought to you by Tech Central. If you haven't subscribed yet, please do so. You can do that on YouTube at youtube.com slash techcentral. And while you're at it, why not subscribe to our daily newsletter? You can get that at techcentral.co.za slash newsletter. Now, we've got an exciting conversation coming up next and a conversation I think is relevant to every South African uh, and that's the subject, of course, of load shedding and what we can do about it. I'm very pleased to welcome Vincent Maposa, and he is the founder of a company called Weetility. Vincent, great to see you. Welcome. Thank you, Duncan. Thank you for having me on the show. It's a pleasure. You, um, you started this business four years ago. Uh, we've had intense load shedding in that time. You must be a very busy man. Extremely busy. Uh, we didn't anticipate that we would be as busy as we are right now, but we, we expected it. Mm-hmm. So the business was started with, with load shedding in mind. Yes. And how the, the residential and, and homeowner market was underserved in that space. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of buzz in the commercial and industrial and IPP space yeah. for solar. And uh, we, we started the business at a time when battery storage was becoming more affordable. Mm-hmm. And we then thought of a way of just coupling that and making it an offering that we present to homeowners. Because for homeowners, it's, it is about saving on the electricity costs, but ultimately it's about averting load shedding. Load shedding. And we're going to get into a lot of detail about utility and what it is you guys do. But tell me a bit about yourself, Vincent. What's your background? Have you always been in the power space? So I've always worked as a consultant, strategy consultant within okay. the power space. So my first job, I worked as a researcher for a company called Frost & Sullivan. I used oh, to yes. based in Cape Town. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we used to focus on uh, energy and power systems. So I used to write a lot of reports. So it used to take me about six weeks to write about three reports and then end up on television channel explaining what I'd written in that report and then it gets sold to a couple of stakeholders. So that was my first job. Mm-hmm. Then I ended up at Deloitte in the strategy consulting role, um, particularly focused on infrastructure and power systems. And my last job before I started Utility was in the was in the power generation industry at a company called Cummins, which is the largest, if not one of the largest power generation companies in the world. So I've always had, you know, I've always spent a lot of time right. focusing on the energy sector, on the power sector. So I have a very good understanding of a lot of the yes. parameters and dynamics across the technology side, as well as electricity pricing, okay. understanding consumption models uh, for, for electricity. So did you study electrical engineering then? Unfortunately not. I'm uh, not an engineer. Uh, I think... My left brain is probably an engineering brain, but I'm actually a mathematician. Oh, wow. Right. Uh, so yeah, I'm a mathematician, uh, dabbled in a bit of finance stuff, and as a strategy consultant, that, that was just honed in as, right. as a set of skills to have. Okay. And a big demand for, for these sort of skills and the sort of offering in the lo- local market for obvious reasons. Now, um, obviously, it must have been a big decision to step out on your own. I think it's a big decision every, every uh, entrepreneur takes at some point yeah. in their careers. Um, what convinced you to do it? I think there, w- there was a growing market, uh, and I've always wanted to to venture into an, a space that's not necessarily uncharted, but where innovation can be the overlay on existing systems and existing things. I think yeah. solar panels and, and batteries have existed for a very long time, but the delivery model, the service delivery model into the markets we were targeting was not as sophisticated. And ultimately, there was a, a real reason behind it, which is we have significant energy poverty issues mm-hmm. in South Africa and across Southern Africa. So I think they're more pervasive or at least more, more pronounced outside mm-hmm. of South Africa because South Africa has an 86% electricity access rate. But for us, energy poverty extends to the unavailability of it and how it actually affects people and, and businesses. So I saw that as a, as a, as a call to action, mm-hmm. uh, as a thing that we could specifically target, and that was the primary reason why we started the business. Mm-hmm. There's a significant energy crisis. It affects livelihoods, it affects the state of economies, and it affects a variety of other things that, that people don't necessarily you know, look into when there's an energy crisis, right? And we were looking at ways of, mm-hmm. of, 
you know, averting that and, and contributing positively. Right. And there's a couple of co- co-founders that you have in the business as well, is that right? Yes, that's true. I have uh, two co-founders, Sandeep Velodia and uh, Chifiwa Nekavambe. Mm-hmm. We're still with the business. So um, Sandeep and I worked at Lloyd together. Right. Chifiwa and I worked at Cummins together. And then we have our chief product officer who joined a bit later on, but uh, he's also been quite fundamental in how we've set up the business. Right. His name is Ikena Okugo. Okay. They've been going four years now. Uh, I think uh, people might be surprised to learn that your uh, biggest backer, to date at least, has been the paid television broadcaster multi-choice group. Yeah. Uh, how did that come about? So we were part of the multi-choice accelerator, which ended up with a, let's call it, an accelerator extended to a trip to Dubai, but was linked to the Dubai Expo, of which, if you remember, multi-choice was the main broadcasting partner for the South African uh, contribution to the Dubai Expo. Okay. So we're part of the accelerator program. Uh, we were you know, one of the you know, successful companies that went through a very rigorous program. And at the end of it, uh, some of the commitments from multi-choice were to invest further in the business, but also look at it from a commercial perspective. Mm-hmm. How can we support these businesses commercial, commercially? What typically happens with accelerators and any venture of that nature, which prob- typically involves a very large entity. It almost it feels like an enterprise development type of thing. Okay. And you're given a, you know, a bit of money and left out on your own. But with multi-choice, it's been a very measured, uh, very careful and curated an approach to, to, to helping us grow as a business. Okay, so this this accelerator that MultiChoice is running, it, it it wasn't focused on television. It could have been anything. So, so uh, MultiChoice is actually uh, they, they consider themselves a technology company more right. than anything else, and uh, it's tech focused. Yeah, tech focused, and they're moving away from you know being viewed as a broadcaster, but right. more of a technology platform that allows multiple right. you know you know technology interests to be made available through the platforms that they've created and the reach that they have. So, uh, the, the the accelerator involved a lot of technology companies ones with novel technologies, but ones that are also very customer-focused because I think MultiChoice has built a reputation over the years of being a very customer-oriented organization, and they take a lot of pride in trying to advance that as a, as a cause and as a thing that they, that they speak about quite openly. And a lot of their technology has a lot to do with customer experience. Yes. So I think it was a, you know, a relationship that was formed on the principle that this is existing technology, we want to exist in the space, in the home uh, mm-hmm. specifically, and we want to provide technology into the home, but it has to be supported by an experience. Right, interesting. Uh, we had Nico Shiburi, the CEO of MultiChoice South Africa, in the studio here a couple of weeks ago, and he was talking about um, some of these aspects and the fact that the company isn't only focused on TV, and there was the acquisition, for example, of the Nomola app, and yep. the fact that they're offering uh, fiber internet and LTE internet now, not, not just, uh, no longer just a television broadcaster. Now, I believe you're about to close a new funding round, an A-series funding round. Uh, you probably can't tell me too much about it yet because I think, believe it's a few weeks away. Yeah. What, what can you say at this stage? So, so what I can say is it, the, the Series A funding round is important for us. It's important for us as a business because we not only do we offer you know, you know, hybrid solar kits, uh, including our own hybrid, hybrid battery storage system known as the PACE, but we offer a funded solution which allows customers to, to obtain the system via lease, right, a, a rent-to-own model or yeah. lease-to-own model. In addition to that, we're introducing a new model, which is a subscription model, where the customer basically subscribes on a monthly basis. So you would appreciate that every time we install it at a, at a customer's home, there's a significant amount of capital that goes into the actual system that yeah. ends up in the customer's home. So the financing aspect of the business is quite capital intensive. Mm. It requires a significant amount of money. So what our Series A round, and, and us closing it, will signify, or at least signal to the market, is that we have the capacity 
to grow at a significant rate. Mm -hmm. From a pipeline perspective, we have a significant pipeline, but it has to be supported by a sufficient amount of capital for us to be able to deploy. Right, right. Is there a race between you and other competitors in this market to to to, to lead the space? I mean, what's what's happening? Is I, I know there are some players yeah. operating in the space as well. Um, what, what is it looking like out there? It's pretty a pretty nascent market right now, isn't it? Pretty nascent market, mm -hmm. but we have to look at overall penetration for all the players in, in the space. And we don't we don't expect it to have reached 2 to 3% at this right. point in time. So yes, there is a race to to claim share of wallet and, and, and share of, let's call it mind, in the yeah. customer's sort of mind frame around which company is, is more eminent, which company will deliver a solution, which company is more credible. So there is that natural race towards that. Mm -hmm. But I think the market is quite sizable. It's a very underserved market mm -hmm. in terms of the product. And the main barrier is, is just... The fact that homeowners, small businesses cannot actually afford to pay the upfront capex. Yep. So the entity that that has that you know uh, solidified and yep. has raised that amount of money has the greater chance of growing and growing quite sustainably and growing quite rapidly. But I think at this stage it'll be folly for all these entities to really view themselves as you know, significant competitors mm -hmm. in a very big market. There are a lot more opportunities for collaboration uh, as opposed to to trying to you know parcel out certain yeah. parts of, of the market and we've also start, started doing that as well with some of some of the companies in the space collaborating on, on key things such as supply chain uh, access to installers because that's that's what's critical and having yeah. a, a benchmark set in the market around what's a good installation what's a good service delivery model how how, how is the technology how how are you making use of things such as a native app is there remote monitoring management O&M contract. So I think a lot of standardization will take place before it becomes ultra competitive. Yeah, yeah, and I suppose as long as load shedding is there, the demand is going to be high, sky high, and uh, I suspect that the, the challenge actually is going to be servicing all of that demand. Exactly. That's the current challenge at the moment, right? There, there, there's a significant amount of load shedding, uh, and I think the various stages, whether it's stage six, stage two, the moment it's announced, uh, homeowners, small businesses, and even large corporates become very nervous around the, their prospects of continuing to do what they do on a, on a, on a, on a normal basis. And I mean, just, just listening to, to the ESCOM CEO and some of the board members on the outlook for the business going into the future, you can already tell that it's gonna be a sustained period of, of these power cuts. And ultimately our view is we, we, we want to work in tandem with existing providers mm -hmm. to a point where the ultimate result is uninterrupted power for the homeowner and lower cost of yeah. electricity. And that's yeah. what it's primarily about. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Now, you, you, you touched on the fact that you decided to focus on the residential market. Is it more difficult to service the residential market than, than servicing a business customer? I think it's, it's, it's more interesting. So mm -hmm. the, the business customer, well, in, in our mind, the, the business segment was heavily saturated, or at least there were a lot of entities that were already playing in that space. The, the gestation period for between when you, you engage with the customer and when you f get to financial close, if mm -hmm. we're allowed to call that, for any project is quite significant. Mm -hmm. And for a startup in our space, which is very tech-focused and very focused on developing software and developing hardware of its own, we were looking for a way to enter the market uh, fairly quickly and, and to serve a market that's also significantly underserved. So we find the residential market to be a lot more interesting. It has high, a lot more turnover and a lot more traction uh, mm -hmm. in terms of the number of individual customers that you can acquire fairly quickly, whereas in the commercial uh, space, and if you consider the fact that we started the business, you know, a year or so before COVID, uh, there was technically a shutdown of, you know, whatever activities took place in commercial space, mm -hmm. a lot of scaling back from, a, you know, capital exp uh, expenditure on, on things such as solar on buildings, but the home became the center of, of everything that took place mm -hmm. during that period. 
And that was a boon for us as a business. So I think it's one of those things where because we started out there, we have developed a niche in that space. But interestingly, because we have a niche in the residential space and in the homeowner space, we're getting a lot more interest from commercial and industrial uh, customers, right? So SMMEs that, you know, for example, a a small canning factory, Mm -hmm. a small processing plant at a farm, which have very close parallels to what we do in the residential space. And we're able to service those customers. But even within residential, we're not necessarily looking at just single dweller unit homes. We're also looking at multi-dweller unit homes and how to make you know, or at least provide solutions into that space that are sustainable, that are scalable, and that, you know, deliver power to those to those areas. That means dealing with bodies corporate, that must be an absolute nightmare. <laughs> it is a nightmare, but I think that there's a way. I think with, with most body corporates, it, it, it has to come from a swell of tenants or yeah. homeowners coming to the body corporate and Once challenging. Once made a decision, exactly. it becomes easier. It becomes easier. So I think... We, we're also very, very specific when it comes to marketing and trying to attract the attention of homeowners who live in these body corporate controlled environments. Yeah. If they make enough noise on our behalf, then ultimately they make the decision a lot easier, and then yeah. we, you know, we have a, a path into that. Into, into how that do you home. how do you build in a in a tight urban area in a body in a complex, for example, uh, where there isn't much land space available? Do you then put solar panels on each of the roofs if yeah. you don't have the option of building some sort of solar farm next to the complex? It, it's quite complex, right? Mm. So one of the key things is servitude, right? And right. and who has a claim on the roof space? Yes. And the way a lot of South African complexes were built you know, previously, they didn't have solar in mind. Mm. So you have arced roofs, you have, um, you know, there's no space claim on carports and that kind of thing. So it's quite difficult. Mm. So what we try to do is t- we try to find, or at least focus on, 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 it's called residential complexes or estates where there's there's idle land, mm-hmm. right? That's an easy way because you can ground mount, you can have that. Once you get into areas where you have to trench and find some other way of augmenting the existing roof structure, it sometimes becomes unviable. And we have walked away from certain, you know, body corporates and, yeah. and certain estates where that was, was not the case. But interestingly, if you look at construction now and how a lot of these, you know, complexes are actually being built, they're actually being built with that in mind. So it's simple things like uh, are the buildings north-facing? And are the roofs north-facing in a manner where you can actually place panels on them? Mm-hmm. And you can see a lot of that now with some of the more eminent, uh, you know, developers of, of newer structures. That, mm. that that's clearly a consideration of the thing that they're considering quite quite strongly. Yeah, yeah. the panels have to be north-facing, do they? Well, they have to be north-facing for you to to to, to get Opt- the best optimal. efficiency. Mm-hmm. On, yeah, to get the, the optimum efficiency. But in certain cases, you can you know make them east-west-facing right. and still be able to to get enough irradiation for for it to be sufficient for you to power up, but typically, yep. ideally, you want them to be north-facing. Okay. So take me through the typical installation and, and what's involved. Let's let, let's go with a freestanding free house to make it a little bit easier. Yeah. Homeowner phones you up and says, we're interested in your offering. What happens then? Yeah. So typically, the homeowner goes to our website or, or figures out a way to end up on what's called the rapid calculator, okay. where they enter their residential address and they enter their monthly electricity bill on our yes. platform. It's called WeX. And then we have an auto-generated preliminary proposal, which basically says, based on these parameters and where you live, this is the type of system that you would qualify for. This is a preliminary proposal. Mm-hmm. Then the customer can customize certain things, like what they would like to have powered up during a power outage, mm-hmm. uh, considering that it is a hybrid solution. So power is supplied to all appliances on, a, on the principle of you know solar first, battery next, and then mm-hmm. grid last. And then beyond that, the customer chooses the payment option, they then enter, you know, certain information. And so then payment options being? What, what are the payment options? options being a pay at pace lease, which is the lease to own that we offer, right. the subscription model which we're introducing. They can choose to, to have it paid. For, uh, they can go to their bank, basically, yep. so they can add it onto their home loan. Oh, you can do that as well. You okay. can do that as well, or you can pay cash. 
right? right? Uh, and you can pay cash, and then the customer picks what, what, what they prefer. They can play around with certain things such as the term, whether they want to, you know, to put down a significant deposit, so on and so forth. And then once they're comfortable with that, they enter their, their, their contact details. Mm-hmm. And then a proposal is generated and sent to their email box or inbox, and sure. they're able to then take a look at that. Uh, and that's and all automated. That's all automated. If a customer calls in, we take them through a similar journey, but over the phone. Yes. Basically, we ask them for that information. A consultant takes them through that, and then at the end of that, they receive a proposal. So I think we, we have one of the fastest mm. uh, rapid calculators or proposal generators in, in the industry. Mm-hmm. And then after that, you know, certain activities take place. We, once the customer accepts the proposal online, we, we perform a site inspection. We see if we're going to change the, the proposal in any way based on what we find on the actual customer's site. Right. And then thereafter, they accept it. We go through the credit checks. We figure out if they qualify. And if they qualify, we should be able to install within 7 to 14 days, you know, if, if there are no supply chain issues. Right. Okay. Yeah. So once you've signed this agreement with the customer, uh, what happens if that customer then decides he's going to sell his house and move somewhere else and someone else takes over that house? Is the contract then move to the new homeowner? Yeah. So there the are variety of ways that the customer can can either continue with the contract or exit the contract. So mm-hmm. if they decide that, look, I, I want to leave the system with the new homeowner, we will yeah. perform credit checks on that homeowner and see if they qualify to take that on. Okay. But typically what we ask for is for the customer to settle at fair market value as opposed to you know, lease receivables or outstanding lease payments. Okay. Uh, and that's a fair way of saying to the customer that you know the system has been in use for a certain period of time, it has degraded, and it has a value of X. So mm-hmm. the best way to exit that would be to exit at this, at this particular cost. And then that's triggered as a sale. The customer can also elect to have the system transferred to their new home. Mm-hmm. So that, that comes with a particular fee. Oh, they take it with them? They can take it with them. We've right. had customers who have requested that, uh, which is interesting. So we uninstall the system. We go and uh, install it at their new home. Uh, but with some of the models that we're introducing, we are looking at one where a customer subscribes on a monthly basis and they can cancel at any time. Mm. And obviously cancellation has you know, certain cancellation costs, which is you know, the typical you know, structure that you have in, yeah. the, in the cell phone industry where yes. you're on a 24, 36-month contract. If you terminate prematurely, there's a penalty associated with mm. that. But beyond that uh, specific term, it becomes a month-to-month arrangement. And we view that as a, as, a, as a model that a lot of South African homeowners are fairly comfortable with are making use of, especially in the fiber-to-home space mm. and with ISPs as well. So I think it's something that we really want to, to develop yeah. further. I'd imagine, though, that it adds to the selling price of your house if you have something like this installed and that most home buyers would want to take it over. Absolutely, it does. It does add to the selling price. Uh, a lot of, I think, what we've seen, and this is through engagements with uh, certain estate agents, is that it's quicker to, to sell the home right uh there's obviously you know once you, you you have to take into account when the system was installed and whether it's settled enough for for you to to embed it into the value of the home yeah but from the from the property agents we've engaged with it's apparent that once the home has a solar system it's a lot easier to sell because yeah. it's, it's a big and significant problem uh in, in for a lot of homeowners mm. especially because the home has become the nucleus or the center of a lot of activity okay fascinating so what are, what are most customers opting for are they uh are they opting for a subscription? Well, that's a new, new, new yeah. service you're offering. Yeah. Uh, are they buying it up front? Are they? Yeah. So interestingly, a lot of customers are, 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 off, are opting for the lease to own model um, mm-hmm. because it's it's a it's a nice way to to prove to the customer that you know you can pay for this on a monthly basis. In certain cases, depending on the customer's current electricity bill, the sum of the lease payment and the sum of the the bill that they will then pay after they receive a system from us yeah. to to the power provider. Is, is a lot less than if they didn't have the system. So a lot of customers prefer that model. It's also the one in the market that's easier for, yep. for us to actually generate uh, a proposal for and actually get to install. So mm. 
the banks have you know have been quite supportive um, uh, we have partnerships with with a few of the banks in terms of trying to to get the home loan side of their business as well as the vehicle mm-hmm. and asset finance of their business to support their own customer base but sometimes it takes a bit long and mm-hmm. the customers i need immediately so we get a significant spike in requests mm. whenever there's load shedding and the customer would prefer to get a lease to own system that that gives them immediate relief and then they can figure out what sort of financing structure they can you know get into at a later point but in the interim they already have a system mm-hmm. is every build unique uh, do you have to come up with n- different solutions for every every time you go and do a build or is there a lot of standardization involved so I think there's a lot of standardization in general, uh, especially when it comes to roof types. So you yeah. have your, your clay tiles, you have your, your concrete tiles, you have your IBR sheeting, and then you have thatch, which is a big problem for us. We don't like it much. <laughs> <laughs> Do you install on thatch? No, we don't install no. on thatch at all in case, uh, you know, the, the house catches uh, light and, and then, <laughs> yeah. uh, then there's no house to install on uh, ever again. <laughs> so we avoid those altogether. Uh, so from a... From a from a roof types perspective, yeah. this, this, it's quite ubiquitous mm-hmm. in the market, right? What you then obviously need to check as for, our, for ourselves is the structural integrity of that roof. Then there's the other side of it, which is the, the electrical wiring. So we have a lot of very old houses in certain mm-hmm. parts of you know, Gauteng and in, in, in any part of South Africa, really, where COCs were last issued half a century ago. <laughs> right? And in between you know, the, the, the sale of the home, a couple of sales, some you know electrician just goes in there and just says this he has the coc mm. and they actually don't perform the tests so we spend a lot of time figuring out if the coc that is issued is valid if mm. it's not valid we actually uh, only install our system after we've issued the customer with a valid coc or ask them to get an electrician to come out and issue one because we don't want any on the whole electrical installation. on the whole electrical installation then we issue a coc for our actual installation and then you know, we do certain things like municipal registrations and whatnot because it's critical. Well, the last thing that, that any, any solar company would ever want is for someone's house to burn down because, you know, those, those things were not done. And, um, and that's something that we're very, very strict on. And we've implemented significant measures to make sure that that never happens. Yeah. The systems that you deploy, are they uh, grid-tied? Uh, do you get requests from customers to go completely off the grid? Yeah. And is going completely off the grid even feasible? So the system, we install a hybrid uh, system, so they are grid-tied to it. There's a grid-tie element to it, and then there's storage, so it's coupled with storage. Mm. We get a lot of requests uh, for customers to go off the grid. At this point, we think there's a, there's a path to it. We, we think in certain cases, uh, depending on wh- what, what type of setup the customer has, it might be premature. Mm-hmm. And the primary reason why it might be premature is the, the capex that's required to go completely off-grid is quite significant. So what we have is a a product called a nearly off-grid uh, product right. because technically in our mind and, and you know coming from from the the generator business which is you know a lot where a lot of our team actually comes from off-grid means you can go for up to five to six days you know using power off your own source and that's a significant amount of capex but with a hybrid uh, solar solution or hybrid solution you get about 50 to 70 percent of your normal use power coming from that system and then you have you know uninterrupted power because of how the house is wired and how the system operates when you have a power outage. Mm. And we think that's probably the, the, the nice bridge towards eventually going off-grid. Right. Uh, so a lot of you know, homeowners, they, they hear the buzzword off-grid and they mm. think, I want to go off-grid. And a lot of you know, solar companies in our space also sell off-grid systems. Yes. But you know, the, the definitions around that are, are quite strict and, and, and we don't necessarily view it as a thing that every home should, should attempt to do. And it adds substantially to the cost of the deployment, doesn't it? Exactly, it adds substantially. Uh, what what what's kind of gives us comfort is that over the last couple of years, say about five years, the cost of batteries, the average cost has decreased quite significantly and we expect that to be the case going forward. So mm-hmm. 
you know, barring what, what's happened with, uh, with COVID and, you know, a couple of, you know, conflicts in, in Russia, Ukraine and impact on supply chain, there has been a difference in pricing and prices have begun to shoot up again. Mm-hmm. But in general, the trend was downward and it, it generally has been, has continued to be downward. So when you take that into account and how the architecture of certain, uh, let's call it batteries, are, is actually mapped out is to make it modular. So over time, as they get cheaper and cheaper, you have the opportunity and option to add more and more of that uh, capacity mm. to a point where it might become you know, fairly easy to go off-grid. And an interesting one now is electric vehicles and the fact that you have probably the largest battery uh, you know, that you've ever had in your home, in your actual car. Yep. So most solar systems, about 10 kilowatt hours. With electric vehicles, we're now getting up to 100 kilowatt hour batteries mm. for the larger SUVs. Mm. And there, the charging protocols from a lot of the manufacturers allow bidirectional flow. So you could essentially have enough power in your car to power your home for a certain number of days. It was something that was actually quite popular for for some solar providers in the U.S. during the hurricane, I think, in Texas last Mm. year, where I think the Ford F-150 was the car that was used to basically power quite a number of homes because Mm. it has that bidirectional charging system that allows that to happen. That's fascinating. Have you you had calls from from clients who are looking for uh, solar-powered solutions for their EVs? Yes, we've had we've had a lot of calls for that. I think that, that market, I think there's there are quite a number of companies in South Africa that are looking at that. So the, the charging stations, the home charging stations, their developments as well in terms of speed of charging and being able to use your normal 230 volts to charge at a very fast rate. Mm. So we've had a lot of calls for that. So we view that as a kind of a next step for us mm-hmm. uh, once, once there's massive adoption of electric vehicles in South Africa. At, at present, the adoption isn't that great, but yeah. I think it's growing at a faster rate than any other, you know, sort of adoption of any type of fuel technology mm. or, or, or or that kind of, of thing. And we view that as a significant thing to take to, to keep an eye on. Yeah. Because once it happens, once you have critical mass in that space, then even how we engage with our power utility to remain powered up in totality mm. becomes very, very different. And it'll be interesting as well to see what happens to the total cost of energy when mm. that starts to happen, because we're literally charging electric vehicles to do a variety of things. So it becomes very interesting. Okay. Just coming back to the, the discussion then about the, the, the homeowner who's had this solution installed at their house. It's done now. He's got it uh, or she's got it. Uh, what, what are they then able to do with it? I believe you've developed your own software platform. Yeah. Um, uh, is that a, in the form of a smartphone app that the consumer can then use to control the system? And what can they do with it? Yeah, so we've developed a, a, a smartphone app called WeX, which is basically a remote monitoring and management app. Mm-hmm. And what WeX allows the homeowner to, to do, at least to, f- to view, is how the system is performing. It has a power flow diagram which shows what, where the source of power is actually coming from and where it's being consumed in the home. In addition to that, it has a variety of modes, one of them being smart mode, where we basically run the system for the homeowner. So take a day like today where it's cloudy mm. and you want to make sure that uh, when load shedding happens at 4 p.m., you have enough power in your batteries. So smart mode uses a variety of you know, machine learning and other things to make sure that that actually happens. So it views consumption patterns, and then it makes smart decisions on how to make sure that the homeowner remains powered up. Then the homeowner can choose to have you know, manual mode where they set the depth of discharge or state of charge rather okay. of, their, of their battery on their own. So a variety of things that that app allows the homeowner to do. So it could automatically disconnect the microwave oven, for example, to save power for no, later in the day? No, not, no, not quite. No. So what it does is it, it, it looks at the home in, 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 its, in its entirety mm-hmm. and basically says, look, if, if you have load shedding at 6 p.m. this yep. afternoon and yep. it's a cloudy day, the, the, the priority for the inverter is to make charge your batteries. Mm-hmm. So then it redirects the, the inverter's focus to not necessarily powering up your appliances during the day, but make sure that your, I see. your battery is fully charged. I see. 
the next layer, next level for us is actually home automation. So what we've started to do is we've started to add specific smart devices into the home that are controlled from that app. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of them is a smart geyser control. So how can we optimize uh, heating of water in the home, which is contributes to about 30% of your total electricity mm-hmm. bill, if you really think about mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. to make sure it's done at certain times and uses the cheapest source of power. And that's a significant thing for us. And also just lowers the homeowner's electricity bill. Yeah. And you can make those commands from, from the app, right, from the WeX app. And with time, we're going to add on a lot of home automation, exactly what you're referring to, the ability for that homeowner to switch off certain appliances, especially the ones that consume quite a lot of mm. power. But I think also in the appliance space, a lot has been done by the OEMs in that space to, 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 you know, to build more and more yeah. energy-efficient appliances to the extent where it, it almost doesn't matter whether you switch certain things on or off. Right. Yeah. Fascinating. Right. Uh, I want to talk, before we wrap today, a little bit about... Um, the state of regulation and policy around solar installations in South Africa. Yeah. And I know there's quite, there's quite a bit of controversy around this and also a lot of confusion. Yeah. Um, what is the current state of play in South Africa? And I know it may differ from municipality to municipality. Yeah. But if I put solar on my roof, yeah. can I sell that back into the grid? So it, it differs from municipality to municipality. Certain municipalities are fairly advanced in terms of having published a tariff, mm-hmm. that to be the case and are looking at physically being able to push electrons back. So most inverters have that capability and, and are built with that in mind. The utility hybrid pace has that as well and has that capability to do that. Legally, I think certain municipalities have the legal right to actually do that, and the regulation allows for them to actually, you know, basically run that system and allow the homeowner or the business to push power back. The difficulty is is always with any situation like that, like it's like a blockchain, mm. is what's the ledger and how are you going to account for all those transactions and make sure that if you push power back, right, you get what's due your way in terms of either credit or, or actual, you know, monetary benefit around that. And then the other thing as well is just this, the non-standardization of, of systems themselves. Mm. So you have inverter X, another person has inverter Y and inverter Z, and they're not speaking to each other per se and there's no consolidation point. So how do you make sure that's the case? So part of it as well has to involve metering. But uh, I think City of Cape Town is fairly advanced. I think they're actually looking at introducing a program for homeowners after introducing one for for commercial and industrial customers to be able to do that. And I think uh, the rest of the municipalities naturally will follow that lead Mm. and be able to do that. So our view is it'll probably take another five to ten years for it to become something that's pervasive. And also I think with uh, the potential unbundling of ESCOM, because you also need an independent system market operator to be the arbiter when it comes to some of those transactions. Right now, I think on the ESCOM system, you can easily do that, but there's there's certain changes that you need to make to your account with, uh, with 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 the power utility that allow you to push back and gain credits and that kind of thing. So I think the models are are still very nascent as well. I think they're they're developing, and, and the market itself is, is fairly new. Mm. The models are developing, and at some point, there will be a lot of consolidation of thinking and way of doing things to the extent where it just becomes a standardized model and it's applied across mm. across the country. Here in Gauteng, uh, can you do anything like that at the moment? or the Not, not at the moment. Not yet. Um, not yet. Um, there's a significant drive. Maybe more recent information would suggest that there's a significant drive to launch that fairly quickly okay. uh, and be able to, to do that. You can do that as a C&I player if you... Say you you're, you're you're sourcing well. If you're on the ESCOM grid, mm. then it's 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 a fairly you know simple thing to do as a as a as a commercial and industrial customer. But say you're in a municipal jurisdiction and you would like to to basically purchase power from a plant that's in an ESCOM 
uh, territory. I think there's, there's actually a way that you can do that. So if ESCOM is generating power or you have an IPP generating in the Northern Cape and you'd like to purchase the power as a data center in Ekuruleni, for mm-hmm. example, then there's an opportunity to, to be able to do that. And a lot of it has to do with accounting regulation as opposed to the regulation of the flow of electrons. There's been quite a bit of uh, contentiousness lately about the, um, I think ESCOM made some statements in this regard about a minimum charge if you want to be connected to the grid. I think some municipalities may have said the, the same thing. Uh, the, the idea being that uh, if you are largely off the grid but still are reliant on the grid when, when it's a cloudy day like it is today, yeah. uh, there's a cost in providing that that grid-tied connection to yeah. you, the customer, and therefore you should pay a minimum charge. Mm-hmm. What's your view on that? My view is th- there's, there's merit to that thinking because if you, if you look at what renewables are, they're intermittent. Mm-hmm. So, you know, on a day like this, you know, they're not generating as much power. Then we expect peaker plants or, or you know, the typical baseload power to yep. be available. Yep. That comes at a cost. So that thinking is not necessarily flawed. The difficulty, though, is the price elasticity conversation around that. Mm-hmm. So if you make me pay 2000 versus 5000 versus 10000 and my pain point is, regardless of how much I'm made to pay, downtime costs me a lot more, then you might have a situation where you can levy that as a fixed fee, mm. but the, the, the net result is you push more and more customers away from you. Because ultimately, you know, if you levy that as a, net fee, as a, as a fixed fee, mm. the customer can make a decision to go completely off-grid. Mm. And the customers that are more likely to make that decision are your commercial and industrial ones who have the capacity and the means to, to, to do it mm. and to do it fairly quickly and efficiently. So I think we have to trade carefully when it comes to it. But the, I mean, the argument is, is not without merit. It, it has its merit, which is there is a significant cost that the, the power provider, whether it's a municipality or utility, is incurring to make sure that those plants are available literally when you have intermittency of, of, the, of the nature that we're facing. I guess it's a bit like Telcom's argument that they need they needed uh, in the days when they still did landlines, I think they still do to some extent, exactly. uh, that uh, there's the line rental charge that uh, exactly. if you use the phone or not, you had to pay it. Well, if we're, if we're <laughs> using that argument, then then I guess we, we're also you know making an assumption of where that conversation might end up, right? <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> there might be a lot of leapfrogging and yeah. it becomes irrelevant, right, whether or not you, you, you charge, you have a yeah. fixed charge or not, I'm just not using the service. Sure. But ultimately, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a valid argument from, from ESCOM and from the municipalities. Well, it's going to be a fascinating space to watch, uh, Vincent. You're in a very exciting industry, and uh, I look forward to hearing the news in a few weeks about your Series A uh, fundraising. And uh, we, we would love to welcome you back on the show at some point in uh, the near future to talk about how things are developing and, uh, and what's happening in the industry. Vincent Maposa is co-founder and CEO of Weetility. Thank you so much for talking to Tech Central today. Thank you so much, Duncan, and I look forward to being here to, to announce uh, big news.